It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The effects of climate change, many of which we're starting to see in real time, are extremely complex and sometimes unpredictable. Those inherent uncertainties and the often unclear path to addressing the problem can fuel doubt in some people. Believe it or not, even the climate skeptics want to live in a habitable planet. They just have, in my view, an incomplete view of what is required to achieve it. New York Times columnist Brett Stevens spent several years as a vocal, influential climate skeptic. But after the backlash sparked by one particular column of his, several climate scientists launched a dedicated effort to fully inform him on the issue, and he publicly reversed course. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations, hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Climate, an event that brings together policymakers, scientists, corporate leaders, innovators, artists, and influencers. It's designed to offer the public a chance to interact, learn, and collaborate with thinkers and doers whose actions are critical to addressing our collective future around the realities of a changing climate. Consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. Oceanographer John Englander was one of the climate experts who reached out to Brett Stevens and even invited the columnist on a pivotal trip to Greenland to see melting glaciers firsthand. Englander and Stevens come together on stage to talk about that experience and share persuasion approaches that work for climate skeptics. Susan Goldberg, the president and CEO of public media organization GBH, moderates the conversation. Here's Goldberg. So, this is an interesting pairing, and you're probably wondering why are these two, two people together. So let me just set that up a little bit. In April of 2017, Brett wrote his first column for the New York Times, in which he expressed that there were unacceptable levels of claimed scrutiny or claimed certainty around climate change, and he kind of scoffed at the idea that it was a catastrophic threat to humanity. Well, as you might imagine, there was a lot of blowback to that, thousands of complaints, a bunch of people wrote a, uh, signed a petition that he should be fired from his job, including John Englander. But now, Brett, as you said later, I might have spared myself the outraged reception to my first column if it hadn't been preceded by the name calling of my old columns, such as when I called climate activists a cast of spectacularly unattractive people pretending to an obscure form of knowledge that promises to make the seas retreat and the winds abate. Okay. <laughs> so, John, even after that, a couple of years after that column and after the big hubbub, you reached out to Brett. You, it was like a cold call, and you offered to take him to Greenland to see for himself what was going on. Why did you reach out to this person? Well, after I'd signed the petition to try and get him fired, which didn't work, um, I started reading his columns. And I actually really liked the way he wrote and thought and his uh, skept healthy skepticism on so many global issues. And uh, I really thought to myself, well, maybe I missed something in that original column. So I went back and read it, and it really wasn't quite as um, strident as some people would, would, might think. Um, it just caused a knee-jerk reaction by scientists in the climate community. 
And I was going to New York to talk to the New York City Bar Association, and I had a day in between flying up, and I just thought, what could I do in New York tomorrow? Maybe I could meet Brett Stevens. We'd never been introduced. I sent him an email at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon introducing myself and said, would you be willing to meet? He said, sure, meet me at the Times tomorrow at noon. So we spent an hour in his office and got to trust each other. And then I said, you should come to Greenland, which he did. All right. So I know there, there was a pandemic in between when you actually got to go to Greenland. But why, you know, given, given your thoughts at the time, the skepticism about, about climate change, about global, war, global warming, why did you agree to go to Greenland? First of all, it's an honor to be on stage with the two of you at a, uh, this, this, uh, this uh, uh, conclave. It's, it, I never expected to be here. Uh, second of all, um, my initial thesis about spectacularly unattractive people is being disproved. Uh, <laughs> just, by, just by looking. Um, uh, so uh, there were a couple of events, and they actually come together in a funny way, not just in this room, but uh, at this table. After I wrote that initial column, and there was this tremendous uh, blowback, um, a friend of mine of, of several years, Jason Bordoff, who was just on the stage uh, earlier, uh, earlier this, uh, this afternoon, um, put together a group of um, experts for me to have a conversation with at Columbia, people like Carrie Emanuel, others mostly from academia. Um, and unlike some of my more strident critics, they engaged with me, I engaged with them, it was a productive conversation. And then a few months after that, um, out of the blue, this Englander guy <laughs> wrote me. And you know, my, my argument in my first column was people should check their certainty or their, check their certitude. And then I thought, well, maybe I should check my certitude as well. So if um, I'm so, uh, how certain can I be that they're too certain. I owe it to myself to test my views, and what's the worst that could happen? I could change my mind. Now, when John approached me, I mean, I'd had a lot of very unpleasant encounters before then, people who wouldn't shake my hand. John approached me in such a friendly spirit that it just seemed churlish not to accept the invitation, and that first meeting led to a conviction that I might have something to learn, and plus, I'm a journalist, so I'm always up for a cool junket, and Greenland <laughs> sounded pretty cool. So there was, the, there was the intervening period of COVID, which actually did more also in its own way to turn my mind, and then we went to Greenland. All right, so we'll get back to the COVID part, because I think it changed so much, you know, that many of us think. But when you went to Greenland, what was it that you showed him, and what was it that you saw that changed everything? Well, we, we, did a, we first went to Copenhagen, spoke with people like Liam Colgan, um, uh, scientists, then, then the trip to Greenland. It was, it's a marvelous trip, and if you can afford it, you should go on it, um, or if your organization can afford to send you, in my case, you should, uh, you should go on it. The most striking visual for me, and it's not that it was a kind of Damascene, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus kind of moment, but... but the seeing the trim line between the mountain range of Greenland and the ice sheet, that is to say the equivalent of the bathtub rings that you see in American lakes and reservoirs in the West, that immense amount of space that you knew was once covered with ice and has then retreated was a very impactful visual. It was one of those moments when you go, I, I, I'm looking at it. There is something utterly undeniable here that I have to take account of. 
Um, and that combined with my realization during the pandemic that there are moments, uh, someone said earlier, you know, Mother Nature can't, can't, be, can't be defeated. Um, there are moments when nature overwhelms even the most technologically advanced civilizations. So it was this twinning of the personal experience in Greenland having come out of two and a half years of pandemic or two years of pandemic that really galvanized me in a way that I don't think I would have been galvanized. So why were you so sure that he would have changed his mind? Well, the thing he forgot to mention was that the other thing about Greenland that's rather unique is the scale. There were icebergs the size of this building. And I remember, in fact, you estimated the size of five New York City blocks as you were, you were looking at them one night. The, uh, we've all seen glaciers maybe in Alaska or the Alps or uh, you know, Glacier National Park or something like that. The scale of Greenland is times 100. It, it, just, we're talking two miles of ice. There's enough ice there that if it melts, the global sea level raises 24 feet. And it's melting. In fact, there was a headline this week in the Washington Post that it's melting faster than ever, record heat. So there's a visual there, and also it's like a retreat. It's like it's a classic retreat, going away for four days and thinking about something as opposed to the normal one-hour block. But I was pretty sure that I would, I would uh, persuade Brett, because I, I knew he was a, a logical thinker, that um, I found that in about 20 minutes I can persuade anybody that climate change is caused by us that it's gonna get serious, and while we should do all the things that we're talking about here, we also need to begin adapting for higher sea level, which is now somewhat unavoidable. Okay, John, we've gotta clone you and just get you out there talking yep. to everybody, but since that can't happen, and since we can't take everybody to Greenland, which yes. would also be pretty bad for the environment. Yes. Um, do you think that given that Yes, a lot of stuff is happening now, but the worst of it is some, some generation forward, right? Some years in the future. How is it that climate skeptics, to say nothing of climate deniers, can be persuaded? And John, let me ask you first, and then, and then Brett, as a, somebody who's kind of come around on this, I'd like to hear from you as well. Well, climate is complex, of course. Everything from everything mentioned in the last three days, uh, Sea level is a little different. It's really binary. Either the water is this height or it's that height, and the shoreline moves. And the fact that it's going to change the shoreline for 140 nations. And people say to me all the time, oh, well, sea level rise is a Miami problem. I say, it's not a Miami problem. It's a problem for every coastal city in the world. It's going to change the coastline for the first time in 6,000 years. And we know from geologic history that it's been far higher and the shoreline's been inland. So the, I use the real physics or geolo geology and the simplicity of it to make the case that sea level rise is different. And the ice is gonna melt in Greenland for a long time because of the heat that's already in the system, even without the issues of trying to produce the more greenhouse gases. So we have to plan for the future now, and it's an opportunity as much as it's a problem. All right, so you, you're, you're telling them the facts. And Brett, what do you do? You know, I actually have a very different impression from John here, not only of, 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 of in, in the following sense. I, one of the reasons I appreciated my trip to Greenland, just as I appreciated the panel that Jason put together for me, is that I think, um, on the whole, my experience of Greenland complexified the issue. 
And Jason's, my conversation with Jason was with thinkers who were complexifiers. And you heard that with the presentation with, with Jason. Things are really complicated. There are, there are an endless series of trade-offs. And I'm not an expert on climate, but I might be an expert on persuasion, having been a columnist for 25 years. And I would argue that you will sooner win over skeptics. I won't, let's not talk about deniers, okay. but skeptics by complexifying the issue than by attempting to simplify it. Because simplifications often involve shortcuts and intelligent people have questions about those shortcuts. Presenting a very full picture, thinking through questions of risk and what is acceptable risk is a way of engaging intelligent skeptics at a higher level. And if you can do that, you will win over people like me because we're not stupid and we're not evil, but our questions aren't being answered. Um, address, pitch your, treat your opponent as if he or she is an intelligent and worthy person operating in good faith. And that's the way John came to me. And I think you get much farther with the argument. And also by adding, by adding the note, Let's just find a way to agree on the, on the problem. Let's diagnose the disease. Then let's open it up to a possibility of prescriptions because we don't have a monopoly on truth any more than you do. But how much, I mean, you mentioned not treating people as if they're evil, and yet we do seem to be at a moment in our country, if not a larger, if not a larger group of people, that that is how people treat people they don't agree with, as they're evil, as they're bad, you know, as they, they should be, I, I don't know, they just should go away, shut up is the nicest thing you could say. So how do we get back to that civility to have that conversation? So my, my liberal colleague and I, Gail Collins, have a conversation in the New York Times every week, and amazingly, it's wildly popular, because underneath the noise and the algorithms of outrage, there is a real hunger in this country for civilized, civilized and productive disagreements between two people who, uh, who might not share the same views, but at least want overall the same good goals. Believe it or not, even the climate skeptics want to live in a habitable planet. They just have, in my view, an incomplete view of what is required to achieve it. Abraham Lincoln had a wonderful line. It's actually an aphorism. A drop of honey draws more flies than a gallon of gall. Right. And it's, it's old advice. It's really good advice. It's a really good way to win over people who are, in fact, winnable. They're not in the pockets of oil corporations. They're not irreducibly stupid. They want to hear arguments that treat them like mature human beings capable of reaching mature conclusions. I mean, you've written two books about rising seas. I would assume that you agree that people are persuadable if you go in there with the right approach. Absolutely. Yeah, not only, um, and it just makes common sense. If you really disagree with somebody, you scream at them and throw things at them, it's not going to get them to change their position. But if you can engage them on a point of fact, like did you know that sea level used to be 400 feet lower? or that it used to be 25 feet higher. Well, that surprises people. Or did you know that icebergs melting don't add to sea level rise? Which is really surprising to most people. There's a way to engage people and say, wait a minute, is it, can that be true? You know, tell me. 
And once you get a dialogue going, you can, you can really do some education. Um, by the way, there are four places to go to Greenland this summer. We've expanded our trips at, at Brett's um, encouragement. And uh, I, for whatever it's worth, there are four places. All right. Now, Brett, when I think we all know when skeptics become converts, converts to anything really, they become the best proselytizers. So I know you wrote a 6,000 word story in the New York Times back in uh, October talking, talking about this. Um, how hard was it for you to kind of wildly publicly say, you know, I've changed my mind about this? Because a lot of people won't do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was joking with my editor who's like, how's it coming along? And I'm like, Nick, I'm dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder here and uh, give me time. So uh, um, it felt good. Uh, it feels good to kind of come to an honest reassessment with your own views. And by the way, because I'm an instinctive contrarian, I can't, I can't get that out of my, my system. I think I still managed to piss people off with some of my, my somewhat contrarian conclusions. The... The, the main thing, though, is that it's not impossible to change your mind. It is, in fact, a sign of intellectual maturity and sophistication. And um, um, and also, it's, it's, it's possible to engage on, I think, a much deeper level. Because, again, I mean, from what I've seen of this, this conference, you know, the, the kinds of trade-offs and challenges that climate presents the world are, are so serious, so difficult, that you have, to, you have to find a way to engage, and you're going to have to find a way to engage across lines that previously haven't been crossed. We're getting nowhere. We're getting nowhere with the current dialogue that we have. It shouldn't have to be that way. You can start having really productive conversations. Again, I said this before, coming to people and saying, hey, listen, we're not in possession of 100% of the truth. Let's talk about the kinds of solutions that could begin to make sense. My own view is we don't need one solution. We need 500 solutions. And lots of people can, be part can participate in that multiplicity of solutions, not the one big idea that's going to save the world. One of my favorite parts of the story that Brett wrote um, in October on you know, coming around was at the very end, I think there were nine things, nine practical things that, that we should do. And, and you know, one of them just said that don't allow climate to become a mainly left of center concern. So what can scientists do to, to stop that? Because that's kind of where it is right now. Um, the scientists have a lot to, to learn in terms of better communication, frankly. One of the things that I do that's a bit different, I mean, I really use plain language. I don't even use the word mitigation. That's not a common word in most people's vocabulary. And it means two totally different things. It refers to reducing greenhouse gases and slowing the warming, or reducing the flooding by resiliency designs. Those are both mitigation. So uncommon word meaning two totally different things in the same field. We need to talk clearly. The more fundamental one is we talk about getting carbon out of the atmosphere. We're not talking about getting carbon out of the atmosphere. That's about as true as saying I'm drinking hydrogen and oxygen, which we know of as water, H2O. Carbon dioxide is a clear gas. Carbon is a black substance. So we, need, we scientists need to be much clearer in our communication. Use simple words. Don't try and impress people with jargon and, and technical stuff. So that's one. And I always use simple visuals that anybody can follow, whether they're you know, a scientist or an arts major. Uh, 
I th so I think we all have to do that, but it really is a matter of coming together. Not only is everybody here aware of the crisis of climate change um, and the need to do lots more, lots quicker, as the last few speakers have, have uh, supported, but we are past the point of no return. And the ice is gonna keep melting for centuries now, just because of the heat that's already stored in the sea. Now it's happened before in nature, if you learn a little bit, as I point out in both my books, 120,000 years ago, sea level was 25 feet higher. Most people don't know that. So we have, to we have to learn the science, but in plain language and simplify it. And I think sea level rise in particular presents one of the biggest challenges, of course, particularly for places, not just Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, Jacksonville, and all around the world. Um, but it's gonna change the landforms. It's gonna change nations. 30 nations will disappear this century underwater. We have time to begin adapting. And um, I, is it you know, terrible? Yeah, lots of things are terrible okay, in the world. But this is one actually, if we just take a deep breath and realize that the sea will be higher, let's tr work hard to keep it to three feet of rise, not 13 feet of rise. If we, if we just focus on that as calmly as we can and realize this is the time to start designing for the future, that 100 years from now, what we do today will have proven smart and foresighted, farsighted, um, things that were investing in a different world while we were trying to do all the other ecological things and greenhouse gas things. But sea level is going to be higher. So it's an opportunity to really invest in the future, but we've got to think big. Brett, you're going to get the last word. Very briefly to answer your question. There are two ways in which I think conservatives ought to be animated on the subject of uh, climate. Number one, it's gonna be a tremendous field for innovation. And those who are conservative on the libertarian side should see this as an opportunity for huge technological game-changing advances in the future that work with the grain of a capitalist free market economy, not against the grain. The second thing is that if being a conservative means anything, it means that you care about generations not yet born. Um, some of the effects of climate, the, the ones that scare us, we'll, we'll be dead for in all likelihood. But our great-grandchildren will be alive for them. And if a conservative is supposed to mean anything, it's the belief that you have fiduciary responsibilities for future generations which behooves moral action today rather than letting it go for the future. So on those two points alone, I think that's the way in which you begin to engage people whose views you currently don't share. One last thing. Um, there's a wonderful saying, um, the guy who founded APAC, very successful lobby, once said, we have no enemies. We only have friends and potential friends. And I would just in urge the climate community to, to operate on that same principle. You have no enemies. We all care about the climate. You have friends and you have potential friends, work on that potential. Okay. I want to thank my friends, Brett and John. I want to thank you all, and I mostly want to thank Aspen Ideas Climate for this really thought-provoking and inspirational last few days. Thank you very much.
John Englander is an oceanographer and expert on climate change and sea level rise. He's the president of Rising Seas Institute, a nonprofit think tank working to advance adaption to rising sea levels through better understanding of the issue. Brett Stevens is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. Previously, he was deputy editorial page editor and foreign affairs columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Susan Goldberg is president and CEO of GBH, a public media organization that produces PBS content and supplies content for NPR and digital audio services. She was previously vice dean and professor of practice at Arizona State University and editor-in-chief of National Geographic. If you are inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Register today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Climate Team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.